Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special solar-powered edition, I talk to solar power forecaster Dr Nick Ingerer. But first up, here's the news. Tesla saves South Australia. On the 9th of March... 2017, Elon Musk tweeted a promise that he would fix South Australia's energy security problems by installing 100 megawatts of power storage within 100 days of contract signature. Or do it for free. The Australian billionaire founder of the Atlassian software company Mike Cannon-Brooks replied to Musk promising that he would organise the money and political will if Elon Musk would offer mates rates. For Elon Musk's company Tesla, it's wonderful publicity and a foot in the Australian market. For South Australia, it's a solution to their energy crisis and great publicity. And for the solar power industry in Australia, it's the leadership they need. South Australia suffered a statewide blackout in September 2016 due to a massive freak storm knocking over the power distribution towers. And during a recent heatwave, Customers were intentionally blacked out by the private operators because there was not enough power to keep demand. Because the market operators found they could make more money by not switching on their emergency gas generators than they could by keeping customers supplied with power. South Australia has an energy security problem that's been made a political football by a federal government that's blamed wind farms for the storm and brought a lump of coal to Parliament as a prop to show how little they care about climate change while they gave government subsidies to the coal industry and pretended that technology to generate power with coal without air pollution will ever be profitable. In the days since his offer, Elon Musk has spoken with South Australian State Premier Jay Wetherill and Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull about the power storage project. Tesla has installed 80 megawatts of battery storage in Southern California in 90 days, so Elon Musk could make this happen. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dr Nick Engerer is a lecturer at the Australian National University's Fenner School of Environment and Society and Chief Technology Officer and Founder of solar power forecasting and modelling company Solcast. He's an expert in solar power systems. I phoned him and began by asking Nick, Elon Musk has offered to fix South Australia's energy problems within 100 days or provide the storage solution for free. What did you think? Well, it's about time somebody came in with some leadership because we're not short on ideas on how to fix this, but it's really the leadership that I think is missing. And here you go with tech entrepreneurs. It's not just Elon, it's also Mike Cannon-Brooks, founder of Atlassian, 
who's actually kind mm-hmm. of triggered some of this and this bit of banter back and forth. And it's a pretty exciting prospect because really, when you look at the problem in South Australia, in terms of the energy that needs to be put into the mix to fix things, it's really not that big of a problem. And that's why Elon can come in and say, hey, we could fix that. So I think that it's totally a possibility. And in terms of doing that, managing those types of batteries in the grid, that's actually a really nice matchup with the type of research and work that I do because matching in those batteries is going to be a big question of when to use them, when to charge them, when to discharge them. And that really comes down a lot to not just user demand, but also solar power. And that's the thing. Solar power seems to be something that the power companies are a bit reluctant to include in their power grids. It depends on who you ask. So if you look across the energy generation, transmission, distribution, and retail spectrum, there's actually actually a lot of different operators. You have the energy market operator, which is fairly agnostic on the technologies. They just want the market to operate well. You've got the transmission companies, which have the big tall towers that take the power from the centralized power stations and bring it down to our distribution networks. And then you have the distribution network service providers who take the power from the transmission network and deliver it to our homes and businesses. Then the person who sends you a bill is actually a retailer. And across that spectrum, the transmission network and the distribution network, their job really is just to make sure the lights stay on, that we have power quality, power quantity matched. And they're not too worried about whether or not that comes from wind, solar, pumped hydro, gas, coal. They just have, they have a different job and that's to keep the power supply reliable through the management of their networks. So it's really actually the retailers that send you the bill that have the most to gain or possibly the most to lose here, depending on how they decide to play. Because if you put solar on your rooftop, you end up spending less money on the bill that you send to them. So that's that's a big thing there. I think the retailers are the ones that might be a bit nervous and you can kind of see them in Australia, they're still trying to figure this thing out. And how big can solar be for power in Australia? Can it provide most of the power eventually? That's a great question. And a couple years ago, we had some estimates from the CSIRO that, you know, after around 20% penetration, meaning 20% of the homes or businesses in a given region have rooftop solar on, uh, you know, installed, that we begin to see problems, that we need to do different things in terms of managing the network. But I've now traveled around this country and met with eight different distribution networks, varying from Northern Territory, to WA, New South Wales, Queensland, uh, even Tasmania, and I see them successfully managing even higher penetrations than that, and in some cases having uh, suburbs where there is solar on every single rooftop, and things haven't broken yet. So I think that the total penetration of rooftop solar can be quite high, and that's based on experience and also the kind of benefits we get when we use distributed energy resources like small-scale solar. When you have a lot of solar spread out over many different rooftops, it dampens the effects of cloud cover because you do what's called geographic smoothing. You stick the solar panels all over the place, they can no longer be impacted by one single cloud. So there's some big advantages in that, and uh, you can already see that we're able to accommodate very high levels of solar, particularly in areas where we have kind of very dense distribution networks in cities, for example. And is there information coming from people's roofs into the power network so they know how to handle what comes in? (laughs) That's a really brilliant question, and it provides a great segue for some of the work that I'm actually doing. And one of the main challenges 
with the 1.5 million PV systems that we have installed in Australia is that the vast majority of them are small-scale rooftop style PV systems and they simply actually are not monitored in most cases. We have some smart metering in Victoria, but outside of Victoria, you know, 95% plus of the installed solar of that scale does not have active feedback to the distribution control rooms or to the energy market operator or to the retailers. So the electricity network effectively does not know from moment to moment what that rooftop solar is doing. Uh, there are some tools to estimate that, and those are the types of tools that I'm working on. You were talking about when people put different batteries in and how the solar panels and the photovoltaics are managed in a network. Is that the sort of information you need to be able to make those decisions? Absolutely. So if you, if you start off with a network where it was built to work one way, power flowing from upstream big generators down big transmission lines into distribution networks and off to homes, everything works you know, very well with that network in that one direction. But as soon as you start to put solar you know, embedded into the distribution network level uh, on people's homes, now the power doesn't necessarily flow uh, all downhill like it did before. It can actually move back up the network. It can, move, it can actually see its power very up and down with changing cloud cover. And because we don't know what the rooftop solar is doing from moment to moment, so every five, ten minutes, we have no idea what's happening you know, in those um, short periods of time or longer periods of time, we need to come up with some way of modeling and predicting the behavior of that collective network of rooftop PV systems. Because once we do that, we can all of a sudden now see in the network, get an idea of what's happening with the solar variability, what's happening with the rooftop scale power, and we can kind of fill in that missing information in our network. Once you fill in that missing information, now you can start saying, all right, we have solar variability, we have some voltage issues or frequency issues in our grid, we know the vulnerable parts of our network where these problems are happening, now we can install a battery. And not only can we install a battery, because we can forecast when there will be big changes in solar power, ahead of time we can know when we'll be using that battery and use it intelligently. So information is key. We need to know what's been happening, what is happening, and to be able to predict what will happen. Absolutely. And in particular, with fast-changing, fast-moving cloud cover like thunderstorms, cold fronts, fog dissipation, we see that there are times when many of these PV systems, even though they're spread out all over a given region, will behave collectively in terms of having their power suddenly pick up or suddenly ramp down. And so if we want to have these very high penetrations of solar in our network, we need to be modeling and forecasting effectively the cloud cover ahead of time. And that's exactly what SolCast does. And through partnership with the Australian National University, we've also got some relationships with those distribution networks that are managing those um, solar variability issues. We're trying to fill in the blanks for them. And this is actually research that you started when you were doing your work as a student. That's right. So as a PhD student, I built a tool called the Regional PV Simulation System, RPSS for short. I just had to come up with a name really because the next thing I wanted to do after getting that thing to work, kind of have a demo, was get some funding to scale it up and go solve this problem. So what I did was build a tool that effectively knowing where the small scale PV systems are installed in space, we can model their power output. And with some very cool tools, like monitoring a small selection of those PV systems and a brand new weather satellite called the Himawari 8 satellite, which images the Earth every 10 minutes at one kilometer resolution. 
we can actually use information about where the PV systems are installed, their, their capacity, their location, and we can use this radiation information from this new satellite and monitoring of some of those PV systems to fill in that picture for those distribution networks. And when we do that across enough distribution networks, we can also get a broader picture of what's happening across the whole energy market. And that's the goal. It sounds like this sort of monitoring should be built into the photovoltaic systems that people have on their houses or that even that they're generally contributing to the grid. But is that not the case? Well, it, it, monitoring can be expensive. And it's only very recently that monitoring has become less expensive and that it's becoming more common. And so what is more commonplace now over the last around two years is for the unit on the side of your house that, that converts the solar electricity from direct current, DC, to alternating current, AC, which is what you use in the home. That's called an inverter because it inverts from DC to AC. That inverter is more often now internet connected. And so what we can actually do is we can actually pull those inverters and pull some of that data back to fill in that picture. But it's still a small representation of the total sample because most of that solar was installed prior to that type of internet connection being uh, very common. So you could end up with an internet of solar panels. Well, that's right. At least an internet of being able to observe them uh, and see that they're, they're recent power output statistics. Yes. So what are some of the roadblocks to getting more solar power out there and being used? It depends on what segment of the market you're looking at. So at this stage, rooftop solar has you know, grown very, very quickly. And in some parts of Australia, it continues to grow quickly. WA, for example, people continue to install rooftop solar fairly quickly at the residential scale. But that is kind of running out of momentum because the people who want to install it are going to be proactive in installing it. You know, they've already done it. And the direct incentives called feed-in tariffs that Australia had in place up through 2013, those are now no longer in place. So we're down to the people who are less certain about whether or not they should do it. And as you would know, and many Australians would know, we have a really, really vibrant, robust rental house market in Australia where many homes are actually tenanted not individually owned, and there's not very much incentive to put solar on those rooftops. When you look up the scale to commercial scale uh, buildings, large installations, you know, the IKEA type buildings, that's where a lot of growth is actually happening in the market. These kind of tens to hundreds of kilowatt scale rooftop solar PV systems, there's been a lot of growth in that market over the last three years or so, and that's really where most of the increase in rooftop solar has been coming from. And when you go up the scale even further to talking about, you know, several hundred kilowatts, single digit megawatts, tens of megawatts, that really becomes very capital intensive. So you need to get investment into that sector. And there's not really enough, there's two problems. There's not uh, nearly enough capital to drive into some of those projects, particularly some of the very big ones. And there's also simply just not enough certainty in, in the market for people to understand, for investors to understand, for solar farm operators to understand where the incentives will be over the next you know, five, ten years. Because what we recently did was have a really big squabble from our policymakers about this renewable energy target. And we've got this place where a lot of external investment is a bit you know, hesitant to come in and do things in Australia because of those types of uncertainties that we've created. And isn't the price of solar panels of photovoltaic energy going down very quickly. Yes, I mean the the price of solar 
not just the modules themselves, but the installed costs. So once they hit the ground and they're delivering electricity into our market, both those numbers have fallen very, 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 very quickly. And in particular, what recently happened was the Australian Renewable Energy Agency awarded, I think it was 12 large solar farms with some funding to, to start getting these things in the ground, build them, and what that will do and what it's already been shown to do is build up local expertise and bring those costs down further because there's a regional aspect to this. Once you start to build the farms, the solar farms, locally in a given country, in a given region, you have that skill, you have that knowledge, and it becomes easier and cheaper to do the next ones. So if it's becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, almost exponentially fast, that seems to be both a carrot and a stick, that it's more and more incentive for people to put more and more solar power because it's the cheapest way to do things and will continue to get cheaper. But does that mean it gets too cheap to be profitable? Well, that's another really good question. So the way that this ends up working is we look at the levelized cost of electricity over the lifespan of the unit. And so in terms of a solar farm or wind farm, we see how much it costs at the beginning, how much it costs to maintain, and then the expected amount of electricity it will sell over its lifetime. And when you look at that cost, uh, it's, it's competitive, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, it's competitive with gas and coal for both wind and solar in Australia. And so what that actually means is that they can now compete with these fossil fuel technologies in terms of providing the electricity. So that competition is actually really good because whenever we need more um, generation capacity in the market, they can compete to provide that. So that's a very good thing for them. And you're really still talking about a, you know, a profitable margin for selling that electricity at those prices. And of course, I guess the question that everybody asks every time solar energy comes up as a serious part of the economy is, what do you do at night? Right, of course. Absolutely. And this is where this big idea from Elon comes in, right? We, we need energy storage and we need it at a large scale. And the, it too often gets demonized as you know, this very expensive technology that really simply can't scale up well enough to handle the big, uh, the big numbers. You know, we're talking about 100 megawatts of batteries or 100 megawatt energy storage site. That's no small task. But where we've come over the last few years is to a point where that is actually realistic in the cost for batteries, and Tesla has proven that. And we also start to see really serious discussion happening around other scalable energy storage technologies like pumped hydro storage. So what is pumped hydro storage? Pumped hydro storage is, is effectively exactly what it sounds like. You pump water uphill into a reservoir when you have a surplus of electricity and you let that drain back down from the reservoir over turbines to generate electricity, so hydroelectric dams to generate electricity when you need it. And these are dispatchable. What that means is that we can call on them when we need them. And we're also very good not just in Australia, but globally, very good at using water to generate electricity. This is something that we understand very well. The technology is there for it. And we have now done some work at the Australian National University, actually, where we've picked out where these sites could go. And you can do this off-river, so you're not taking away water from the local water sources. And you can do it in places where the topography is favorable, the environmental, ecological impacts are favorable, 
and where the power is actually needed in the transmission network assets are already there. So we can do that. And what we would do is site these in the right location. When we have a surplus of electricity, we use that to store the energy and then we sell it back when the energy is more expensive. Because we have a spot market for electricity in Australia where the price actually varies over time according to the demand. And so we can actually do that intelligently and make, make a nice profit. That seems to be really important because some of the criticism that's happened is when it's very hot and solar power generates extra energy. And instead of that being a good thing that you're getting more free energy, it's a bad thing because suddenly you've got more power than you can use. And so the price goes down, Right. which discourages the market from using solar power. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is actually one of those symptoms of kind of a bit of a not smart grid. See, if you know that you're going to have a surplus of solar electricity and you could quantify that, you could actually send less electricity downstream and those voltage rises that we would see could come back off the network. But the problem right now is, again, that blindness to not knowing what the small-scale solar is doing in terms of its contributions to local electricity supply and a lack of confidence about what it will do in the near future. But that's where solar forecasting and modeling can help us. So we can manage the grid more intelligently to handle the issue you've just mentioned. And if Tesla comes into the country, if Elon Musk brings his photovoltaic panels and his storage batteries to Australia, is that competing with technology here or is there just nothing equivalent? There are a number of excellent energy storage companies and very innovative firms in Australia that are already doing quite well. There's some vibrant competition in the market. Clearly, if a large player like Tesla comes in and makes a big move like that, it may cut away some of that market opportunity for those different participants. However, there are still large amounts of opportunity in Australia moving forward on this area. So even if Tesla came in with 100 megawatt uh, total power capacity or 100 megawatt hours of storage capacity, I'm not quite clear on which number they're using, there will still be plenty of market for the rest of us. And there's a whole tech sector in Australia that is just waiting for a little bit of leadership, a little bit of a tipping point to really make some big plays. And something like that could make that happen. So he could normalize things in a way so that more people bought the local product. I think that that's fair because one of the things they would force us to do is learn how to manage that much battery storage in our market. And we simply don't know how to do that. And the interesting thing Ian, is that nobody knows how to do that. We're in a spot where we are moving beyond lived experience, and Australia is actually going to be doing a lot of this energy storage integration first. And in terms of the penetrations it will see of uh, large-scale solar coming on, when added to its already world-leading rooftop solar penetrations, we're in for very interesting times, and we kind of need to go forward boldly on this and, and show some leadership because we can't sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. It's come to us first. You know, I think there's an important message to the renewable energy industry as a whole, if I were going to have, have a voice and put something out there that I'd freely like to say. And that is because of the nature of distributed energy resources, there are many of us, there's many small companies, some medium companies, some large companies, maybe like Infigen, which is you know has lots of wind energy resources, trades on the stock market, all the way down to local companies that have really done well, like a Reposit Power, which stores people's energies, energy and batteries 
and dispatches it when the market needs it, all the way down to something small like my company, Soulcast, and all the way back up the spectrum back to universities. But we're all over the place, and we're never going to quite have the energy and momentum and centralized power that many of these uh, fossil fuel companies and entrenched, you know, set in, into um, very confident, strong places that the energy companies of the past are now. We need to work together to be able to confront something like that. So I would say that in every instance, we should be asking the question, how can we enable our fellow community and how can we cooperate to make big things happen? Because we have an exciting feature ahead, lots of opportunity, um, but we are distributed not only in our energy resources, but also in our personal resources. So we need to figure out how to make big things happen cooperatively. You started this off talking about this idea of Tesla coming in and putting 100 megawatt capacity of battery into South Australia. And the reason that there's so much excitement and chatter about that is if we can get the leadership from somebody who has the capability to show it and bring it in, that's the tipping point for renewables and distributed energy storage in Australia. That's all it needs. It's so primed. There's so much energy. Um, there's the right people trying to invest in it. We just need the leadership. So I don't know if we'll get it from Elon, if that was just a fun tweet. I don't know if we'll get it from our friend at Atlassian, but I'm really hoping we see it come through um, very brightly and clearly from someone in the near future because it's going to take us into some excited, uncharted territory. Well, Nick Ingra, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Pleasure. That was Dr. Nick Ingra, Chief Technology Officer for Solar Power Modeling and Forecast Company, Solcast, and lecturer at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University, talking about integrating solar power generation and storage into smart electricity grids. I've entered Diffusion in the new Castaway Podcast Awards, Please vote for Diffusion by going to www.diffusionradio.com and following the link on the upper right. Voting closes on the 21st of March 2017. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Go to the website and click the tab on the right to send a voicemail to be played on air or record an audio note on your mobile phone and email it to me. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Support the show at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Check in production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show.
If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on DiffusionRadio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.